Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, coach. I run Strength Guild and USSF. And this is Dr. John Micah, or my PhD in exercise science at University of New Mexico, team member and columnist for the FTS, and write for major fitness and bodybuilding magazines. And uh, it's really bright and early here in Albuquerque, and it's about 50 degrees, so it's all good. Yeah, we need to give you props. Uh, Phil, too. I mean, it's 8 a.m. for Phil, and it's 7 a.m. for John, right, John? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when we record this, we do this at the beginning of the day, and then I'll edit it later uh, anyway. Well, uh, we've got about 20 minutes or so of gym talk, and then after the break, we're just going to go over to some audio I recorded with Dr. Nelson uh, from Japan. Uh, at the meeting there. Some of the nutrition side of things, those of you who are uh, sort of foodies in one way or the other, we talk about the differences in what people eat. We talk about uh, some of the physique uh, value system and how different it is, right? I mean, everyone over there is so thin uh, and small. I, I mean, I'm making broad generalizations, but I mean, we were giants in various ways. You know, they don't, I don't think they accommodate or really desire uh, the kind of heavily built or very tall um, people like we were over there. I, a lot of people don't realize maybe that uh, Dr. Nelson is – he's 6'3". So in a land where most people are about 5'9", probably, uh, maybe or less, he's bumping his head into things and stuff like that. And we'd get occasional snickers, but of course the language barrier was so high that you had no idea what they were saying, you know, and – Anyway, but I digress. Let's let's do a little bit of gym talk or training stuff, and then, uh, like I said, we'll go to break after that. I just want to throw in mine first because it's very brief. Uh, I ran some stairs. The, the gym in my hotel when I was traveling was off limits, you know, often they're useless. You guys know that, but it was mm-hmm. just – they wanted $17. I'm not kidding, and I, I couldn't even get in to see it. Uh, oh gosh without paying and i'm like i'm not going to do this i'm not going to give you 17 dollars and i go in there and there's you know a couple pieces of cardio equipment at best so i just i ran stairs i ran out to the harbor and watched the sunrise which was extremely cool just being by myself i was listening to japanese music and stuff and just getting in the mood unfortunately i sprained my ankle when i was Uh, doing that you know my advice for younger listeners don't get old just don't don't get old. It's because it's an old surgery. You know, I, I mm-hmm. the bottom line is this for my training side of things. Uh, I've been trying this higher frequency, just dabble as you go thing while my injuries heal. But I'm frustrated by that. And with summer upon me, I'm just going to have to tape my ankle, elbow sleeve, my right elbow and just get my ass back in the gym. I, I can't do this pussy footing around rehab a little here, a little there, you know, a couple reps with two and a quarter. Uh, when my elbow can handle it. I, I need to get back on my regular schedule at the gym. Uh, 
I know some people can do the extremely high frequency, like keep a bench press in your kitchen or something. I don't know, and just bench every time you walk by. But that stuff doesn't behaviorally it doesn't work for me. So I'm I've been making do, but like I said, not real exciting. I just need to get myself back. Uh, in the gym, really. Yeah, but. it's really hard to uh, kind of keep up your normal intensity. Uh, maybe not so much like volume, but just your normal intensity, especially when you, when you travel overseas or even if you go from East Coast to West Coast and the time change and you get dehydrated on planes and you can't move around a lot. It's just, it's always really weird. Like I've always, I haven't, I've never had like a hard time with it, but, but over the years I can just, kind of tell i mean when you're on a plane for so long then you want to go and, and especially when it comes to the heavy compound main lifts you, you just have it's just not always there you know it's to the same extent as if you're in your normal schedule yeah. um, but like other other assistance exercises and stuff like you know you can do those at the drop of a hat um but uh yeah it's just really it, it's really interesting how time change and differences and just travel just affect training yeah, in the audio after the break, um, there were actually some scientific sessions about what you can eat or supplement to sort of reset biological clocks and how nearly a third of all the genes in your body are tied to some kind of temporal clock. You know, it's not just your hypothalamus and that sort of thing. And anyway, but that's for later. Um, let's let's talk about your guys' training. It's got to be more interesting than my piecemeal <laughs> crap. So, Phil um, – what's up with you with the weights and the boxing and yeah it's coming good i i went into my one of well pretty much my last pre-op appointment on thursday oh and it was pretty mm-hmm. funny so i'm in there basically all they're doing is making sure i'm healthy enough to to uh do surgery on yeah and they do my blood pressure and they do my heart rate and it was pretty funny the lady's like so do you do a lot of jogging and cardio because your numbers are pretty good for a big person. I was like, oh, thanks. You know, <laughs> a little offhanded compliment there. Um, for one of you type. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I go into the, my other lady who's going to be, I had to do a meeting with my surgery nurse. And she has to go through this. They gave me a book when I first got it. So she's she's sitting there. First off, she's telling me how she's type 2 diabetic and this and that, but won't give up her sugared Mountain Dew. But um, All right. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we're, we're, she's like, okay, chapter one. The, the exercises, you've been doing those right because we really need to make sure you have strong hips. Oh, my and, God. And it's like six-inch step-ups and these little, like, hip circles <laughs> yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, no no worries. I got my exercise covered there. I've been doing those all the time and this and that. And I didn't tell her I scored 225 right. for 77 reps. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, right, you got to be yeah, so yeah. modest. I was about to say, did you tell her like, uh, "Ma'am, I'm I'm Phil Stevens." Yeah, <laughs> I was like, "I think we got plenty of muscle around the hip. I think we're good." So, it's um, funny. yeah, no, I mean, my my training is still pointed at that. So, like on squat day, I go do what I can, which is, you know, it's not what I used to. I, I went up to like a really hard four fifty five, and there's just too much pain to go further. And then mm. after I go up to a heavy set, I, I drop down. I've been working on these time sets with squats with 225 and now i'm up to a minute 15 and i'm gonna stay there so i did 77 reps and three sets of a minute 15 dude that is crazy with, 77 <laughs> with two minutes rest between sets and i'm gonna stay there until i could do three sets of 30 um so yeah i mean i'm just gassed and the cool thing is now i'm to the point week one when i started this about six weeks ago it was a lot of it was my breath that was stopping me like i was just out of freaking breath from doing so many reps and now it's just muscular fatigue like everything's just pumped up and it's like yeah we're done you're not doing another right rep. shut but down i'm not huffing and puffing 
So, which is a good part. So my conditioning is getting better. And then same thing with my boxing, uh, my sparring, um, around dings to the end. And I'm like, oh man, it's over. I'm, I'm ready to keep going. So that's a good thing. So I, I can tell my condition is coming up pretty quick. Hey, Phil. Um, so, so once, once you have a surgery, since that's coming down on you fast, yeah. what are you going to do training wise? Are you going to take like two weeks and just, when you come back, just do, uh, some light cardio or, or how are you going to do this? Well, I'll come back as soon as I can and, and keep doing upper body stuff. Um, and then lower body is all going to be focused on just getting moving again. Um, and I don't know how it's going to progress. I mean, it, I've talked to different people and some of them it's like, yeah, dude, you're back in there in a week or two. You know, oh <laughs> and other God. ones are like, yeah, it took me longer. So it just depends. Yeah. My number one goal as far as lower body is I want to gain the mobility back in that leg. So above the strength. You know, my number one goal is let's get mobility back so I can, you know, when I bend over on my right side, I can easily like grab the bottom of my foot. On the left side, I'm like mid-shin is as far as I can get. Mm-hmm. So I got to get a lot of mobility back in that side because it started it started getting so bad it was leading to, to back pain. Oh, uh, wow, yeah. Because it's locking down so far, and I've never had a back issue in my life. Right. Uh, so that's my number one thing with that, and I'll keep up. You know, I'll probably drag light sleds and stuff like that. Um, I'll get back to really light squats as soon as I can. But like I said, it's just, you know, it's probably going to be sitting down into a chair, standing up type of thing and doing hamstring stretches and, and things like that. Um, I'll probably end up doing, I have a plate loaded leg curl and leg extension machine. So, I mean, I should be able to do that because it's pretty much all just knee, knee flexion and knee extension. So it's not going to mess with the hip at all. And hopefully that'll save some of it. Yeah. Um, and at least with the good leg, some step-ups and things like that, whatever oh, I can. Speaking of which, Phil, I don't know if I mentioned it. I think I might have in the audio from the conference, but um, I know you take fish oil and everything, and they have you get off of that before surgeries, mm-hmm. and I think because of the bleeding risk or whatever. But yeah. there was a very interesting paper about muscle atrophy and how there was a significant reduction in the loss of some of – you know, like when you atrophy, you get a little bit of blood vessel loss, like capillaries sort of fade, and uh, it, I guess it reduces that. So getting back on the fish oils after the surgery, you know, might be a good thing as far as keeping the the vasculature, you know, in those muscles that are not okay. getting used as much. I know it's just sort of a neat little. It was a poster I saw, you know. Yeah. But anyway. Yep. So that's the plan. Well, and also, I mean, I guess number one plan is I got to get basically. I go in the second for my hip surgery. I'll be out the fourth if everything goes well, um, and then literally twenty one. Days later, my wife gives birth. So you got a full menu. <laughs> uh, I have to get I have oh. to get myself up and going to take care of her because she has to get a C section. So she's going to be down hard, okay. harder than me. Yeah. So you know I, you know my number one goal is get my uh, get my butt uh, <laughs> right. Yep. Up and going so I can I can help with that. So you know both of us can't be down and be like yelling at our seven year old help us. <laughs> right. Right. So that's goal number one is just get mobile again and. You know, my plan right now is I go in on a Tuesday, I'm out on a Thursday morning or Wednesday night. I want to be in the gym even if I'm in a walker coaching people by Saturday. So even if I, I just want to have a, my presence there. And it's like, you know, I'm getting my butt back in there even if I'm just standing there. You know? Yeah, and, right. I, and I think like, I mean, Phil, your your strategy is, is a strategy that like when I had a few like injuries like last like last year, I mean, you're and, and even just in, in general, especially when you're competing at like high levels and you're training high levels, that's something that I think most people just don't do enough of is just being very, very aggressive with the recovery and regeneration process. Because, yeah. I mean, I mean, and 
those that are more highly trained, I mean, you can recover a lot quicker, but if you just be more aggressive about it, you know, and I don't mean like aggressive in terms of do everything to the extreme, mm-hmm. but you just can't pussyfoot around, you know, with this type of stuff because it's, it, your recovery time is going to be even more prolonged. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just something that I think most people just don't understand. It's like, oh, I just won't do anything and mm-hmm. then just let it heal by itself. I mean, it'll it'll heal by itself, but you won't you won't get back to 100 <laughs> yeah, percent. Exactly. And that's, you know, talking to, to Ed Cohn and stuff about his. And he's like, yeah, I mean, uh, I'll let you know what I did and what we do. And he said, it's very aggressive. It sucks. But you're back faster. You know, yeah, it's it's going to be uncomfortable. You know, I'm stretching out things that haven't been stretched in a while. And I got a freaking, you know, half my femur's gone. But, you know, it's just and that's what I've done with my other surgeries is I did I've I listened to the doctor, and then I added on what I felt was safe. You know, I didn't do anything I thought was stupid, but it was like, man, I'm sorry. I'm not going to sit here and curl a two-and-a-half-pound plate, you know, (laughs) when 20 feels easy. You know, I just, you know, did what I could to the point where it's like, yeah, this doesn't feel unsafe. Well, you know, I think think there's a balance because you got to let scar tissue form. You know, and if you're you're cranking eight ways to Sunday in every degree of motion, every range of motion, then I – I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm concerned that the scar tissue wouldn't form properly. You yes. might end up with a weaker, blown out, loose kind of joint. Mm-hmm. So you got to, you know, you can't be like you were saying, you can't be stupid. But then, yes. yeah, I think the physical therapy stuff, it's so um, wimpy. And like mm-hmm. what they were asking you, oh, honey, just little circles with your hip, you know, and it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's insulting. They don't even realize yeah. it, how that seems to be built for almost elderly, frail elderly. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I've got a pretty young and open-minded doctor. You know, he pretty much told me you won't need PT. He said, I'm not going to assign you PT. He said, you know what you're doing. You know, so basically the only PT I'll get is the day and a half or two days I'm in the hospital. They're just going to make sure I can get in a car, get out of a car, walk upstairs, walk down, oh, get in a tub, out of a tub, out mm-hmm. of bed. And then he said, we're going to send you out on your own. And he's like, just don't do anything stupid. You know, don't go in and try and set PRs that first week. You know? Right. But get in and start moving. So, yeah, that's I mean, funny. They pretty uh, much want me up moving and walking right away. So right. I was lucky. The guy I'm dealing with was like, he played football, he played rugby, he played, you know, he's an athlete. So yeah. um, that helps, I think, a lot. So Yeah, when I had my elbow done, I was told the same thing. I actually know uh, the physician and... Uh, same thing. He said, he said, I don't even want a physical therapist cranking on your elbow. He said, you let it sit for, I don't know, I think he said two weeks or 10 days or whatever it was. He said, then uh, you know what you're doing, you know, yeah. and it's nice to get that level of respect, you know, that yeah. you've actually, you're educated enough that you can actually um, apply the right kind of physical activity to rehab a joint, for God's sake. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, no, that's it. I mean, I'm just, I'm in better shape than, you know, I have been in a little while. I've, I've lost... 18 pounds, so I'm down to 257, so I'm a little lighter, feeling good. In a way, it feels good, right? It does feel good to be, you know, better cardiovascular fitness, (laughs) all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a different kind of training, you know, and I've been talking with Wendler a lot, who's who's coming back from his stuff, and it's just just, just getting in a different mindset, you know? Yeah. I'm just not worried about... Max singles, you know, I can't. You know, you it's know, funny. I did, I'd drive myself crazy. It's it's true. You can't, <laughs> like we were talking about changing goals. Um, mm-hmm. I think I'm in a similar boat where I'm just going to try to increase my conditioning and actually not, for you, it's not heavy singles. For me, it's not try to take up more space. 
Yeah. You know, and I think I'm just going to be okay with trying to get myself down. Uh, focus on leanness, you know, because I've actually, since I've competed last, I've put on too much body fat. So I'm going to just, it's some, it's a goal. You know what I mean? It's something that I can do. I'll just work on actually looking and feeling better by just dropping 10, 15 pounds. You know, I need to, I got to set a specific goal here, but, and just cut the fat, you know, but like you work on conditioning and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So. All right, John, what about you? How's training going? It's going good, actually. It's funny because the several days I, w- I was in California a couple weeks ago speaking at a conference, and I had a really good training session uh, that, that Friday. Um, and the several days leading up to my you know, dissertation defense, I just like, – I, I trained that Monday because my defense was on a Wednesday. So I trained that Monday, and it was just like – it was just kind of half-assed. Um, it wasn't, you know, on purpose. It was just kind of like by accident because things were just so stressful. And and then really, not this past week, but last week, I just I just started getting back to to, to business. I mean, I did some uh, floor press, actual floor press with two fifty and then eighty pounds of chains. So it was like three twenty-five from mid-range to top, and um, some speed deads. Uh, we have a Swiss bar, so I was doing some, some suspended chain. Um, Swiss bar overhead press for speed work. And then um, I did some sumo stiffs, sumo stiff leg, leg deadlifts the other day with 365 for sets of eight. And, uh, and those are just some of the assistants or like main lifts. And then last week, uh, one of my good uh, buddies who's a, a pro strong man, we actually did some tractor pulls um, out in the, on the dairy farm. So that was the first time I had done um, truck pulls or tractor pulls. Well, that's fun. About, about about four years, and um, so it's that's always been a really good event for me um, because I, I I'm just taller and I'm, I'm and I'm heavier now than the last time that I did it. But the thing about the tractors is, I mean, when you're, whenever you're dealing with like fire trucks and water trucks and all that, there the tires are just obviously filled with air and. The, the hardest part is just the initial first couple steps. And then once you get going, your momentum and your speed increases. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with the tractors, that's a very, you know, I'm sure Phil can attest, with the tractors, it's very, very different because of all the gears and the tires. The tires are actually filled with water, and they're, they're purposely done like that to help with traction with the soil and, and farming and all that stuff. So the the tractor itself was only twenty thousand pounds, which I thought it was just much much heavier than that. But because of the gears and the tires, it, it makes things a lot more difficult. So you don't get momentum as you go. It's the same type of friction over the course of whatever distance that you're oh, going. So mm-hmm. yeah, we uh, we just did a warm up set with a light tractor, and then um, and then we tried a heavier one, but it, it it didn't budge. So we had to go back down to a middle one and. I did a couple of work sets with that and just did like two work sets with 80 feet. Um, and it was good. I mean, my legs weren't tired. My calves weren't tired because I had been doing some extra conditioning the last several months and, you know, prowler work and then walking up the foothills a lot. And, uh, I mean, you're going to be breathing heavy regardless because it's just, you know, you're just moving heavy equipment. So I, I wasn't really sore at all, you know, the next day. And, uh, people always sometimes it's funny. People usually say, well, "What can I do for calves?" or "What can I do for like biceps?" And I'm like, "Well, 
pull some tractors, pull some trailers. <laughs> That'll get your calves and biceps like really huge, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, the, the strength endurance is not unlike what Phil's doing with the crazy 77 reps mm-hmm. and stuff. I mean, that's that's an that's a, uh, a quality, a physical quality that is both brutal, but it's – it's a combination kind of quality, you know what I mean? The whole strength endurance thing that a lot of people just don't have. You know, they're either strong or they have endurance. But to be strong over many, many reps or, like you said, over many, many minutes of pulling heavy things, I, I, that's a very cool um, quality, I think. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, I, mean, I still say that, that I've competed in a lot of things, but I still tell people, they ask me what's the hardest thing I ever did, and – was pulling an eighteen thousand pound tractor trailer hundred feet. It was yeah. just horrible. Yeah, it was right. everything was shot. You know, <laughs> and but yeah, I mean, you want to get to the end, and it's like it was the hardest like fifty seven seconds of my life. Yeah, it was just horrible. But yeah, it's good for you. Like yeah, high rep sets, kind of. Yeah, I mean, and you know, when you're doing that type of stuff, I mean, you you don't need like six, eight, ten sets of that crap. Mm-hmm. I mean, two to three sets, and you're that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's one of those things to where, and that's why you see. For most strongmen, um, um, really good competitors at the top amateur, and especially the pro, you're not going to see people that are that are under six one. It's like six one or six two is like the minimal height mm-hmm. because when you're doing those types of events, especially like stones and truck pools and stuff, the more body mass that you have, the the the, the better that you are at it, and you have a better advantage because you can move more weight. Um, and you're taller, and so you have, you know, a, a better reach, you know, so to speak. Um, you know, so leverage. And, and with the tr- yeah. yeah, you have more leverage, and with the with the tractor truck pulls, it, it, it's it's something that, and I, it's always been a really good event for me. But it's something that is either re- it's either you're either really good at it or you're not, and you can improve mm-hmm. the skill a little bit. Um, but it's just, and that, that's that's funny how with a lot of strongman events. You're either really good at things or you're not. I don't mean like you completely suck, but just the level of confidence and the overall strength and moving moving certain amounts of weight just comes more naturally for certain events than it does mm-hmm. you know, than it does others. Um, so it, it's it's not like, well, okay, let's let's just take your, you know, sports nutrition X Fist class and we're gonna go out and pull some trucks and it just doesn't work that way. I mean you you do need to practice it. It is it does require a certain level of skill uh, because it's something that most people just obviously don't do. <laughs> right. We we're talking about KSAs. You know how skills uh, are different from knowledge and abilities are different from the other things. And yeah, that's a skill. And you know what always struck me is strongman just looks so fun. Uh, I want to try it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I think it'd be fun to have uh, events for almost like entry level stuff. You know, and I don't feel if you do that with your people at all or not, but or something like that. But sort of the obstacle course type of, mm-hmm. you know, some of those different events where you can, do, you're just really good at one or another because of your body shape. Yeah, you know, it's just fun. I mean, listening to you talk about pulling tractors on a farm—that just sounds fun. You know, I yeah. want to go do that. Yeah, I don't know. You know, fun awesome. days like that is great. I mean, we'll have days where, hey, let's all go throw things, you know, and things like that. I haven't done enough recently, but or we'll we'll do a training session, then everybody gets together and we hook chains up to a car and pull it. You know? Yeah, that's just awesome. And just let's see who can pull it the fastest or the furthest. You mm-hmm. know, stuff like that. So yeah, work on strength tug of war. endurance. Tug of war is always a fun one. Oh, tug of war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we'll just break up the gym into even parts and go at it. So yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, it's fun like that. But all right, uh, 
Well, that's about it, I guess. Uh, we've been going for 20 minutes or so. Uh, we're going to go ahead and go to break, everyone. Uh, we'll call it there for today because uh, Dr. Nelson and I, uh, again, we shared some thoughts from the hotel room when we were over in Yokohama. Uh, if you're bored with sort of the travel log, food log, or, you know, of course it's from the the strength and muscle athlete's perspective, you know, a lot of what we're talking about, but uh, it's more on the science side. So uh, we'll go to that, and um, we'll see everybody next week, I guess. See you later. See ya. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press and protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So – uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Iron Radio listeners are a unique bunch. You value both in-the-trenches skills and the research and evidence that informs it. That's why, as a listener-supported show, we occasionally do funds drives to keep everything free and advancing. Did you know your donations at www.ironradio.org pay for web servers? They allow for small sponsorships of gifted competitors or students and even partly fund research on our specific population. That's what we're asking for during the spring and early summer funds drive. Dr. Lowry, that's me, and some students are on the verge of some key discoveries involving caffeine and explosive lifts, but we need help to get the message out. If you value the authenticity, expertise, and real progress Iron Radio provides, please consider a donation. Any amount is appreciated, but if you could put forward $25 or more and email robertfortney at hotmail.com about it, We'll send you some behind-the-scenes audio lab notes that were recorded during data collection. They offer true insight into what research is like on barbell athletes. Thank you for considering it. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes... 
we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an exercise physiologist and teach for Globe University and a bunch of other stuff. We are coming to you from Yokohama, Japan. Live! Indeed. Uh, well, at least on <laughs> site, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we thought we would share a few things. I think one of the best things about podcasts is that we can bring you a little taste of events and places you know that maybe otherwise you wouldn't get to. So what we're going to do is we're going to touch on a few things, uh, starting with uh, our experiences with some of the food here. It's really very different, and some of you probably know this better than we do, but this is new for us. And, uh, and then talk about the expo. Um, for those of you familiar with the Arnold Classic, think something like that, but much toned down and smaller. Uh, so, let's just start off. What's your, what are your impressions, Mike, with the, the cuisine here? I mean, the, what, what have you been eating that's different? What are the trends in these kinds of foods? And Yeah, there's a bunch of things. Like, we had, uh, obviously sushi a couple nights, which is what people would expect, and... Yeah, sushi was really, really good, and the nice part was it... And raw, really, really raw. Oh, yeah, yeah, we had, uh, of course, Dr. Lonnie Lowry here into eating some fish eggs one night, like the the large fish eggs, not the little dusting of ones that they put on there. That was rough, that was rough. (laughs) Um, But yeah, very different, lots of colors, um, different items than you would um, normally think that you would see. Um, very, I would say, fresh, very colorful, um, uh, lots of gel- Lots of gelatinous, right? Jello-like textures, um, jello coffee-type uh, things. Um, what all the... Jello the, green tea? Yeah, green tea and everything. Yeah, or I'm, potentially wasabi, so watch out for that if you order green things. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I am digging the extra green tea and everything, but... Obviously, wasabi and green tea are two very different flavors. <laughs> you can't say, oh, I want that green soft yeah. serve ice cream. I'd like to get some of that, you know, green tea action, and then it's wasabi. You bought green tea Kit Kats the other day at the store. Yep, got them in my bag. I love those things. So it's weird to see this sort of stuff, right? Uh, you can even get, like, soba noodles. They're called cha soba because they have green tea powder in them. All ki- Just green teas and freaking everything, you know? And so we actually saw some... Um, sessions at the conference about the cardioprotective aspects of green tea and I've been I've drank gallons of the stuff since I've been here so lots of good stuff I've seen stuff on reduced like um tissue damage markers and mm-hmm. liver damage all kinds of interesting things so I think I personal choice I might actually use this to kick off a summer of more green tea and maybe a little less coffee I'm not ready to turn away from the coffee but <laughs> um 
Then we had the box lunches, so we went to a couple of talks that had a box lunch, which I guess is pretty popular here in Japan, that it's a little segment of each box has different items. So we went on a tour yesterday, and so they had a more, I guess, fancier, larger box lunch at a restaurant, actually, which I guess is very common for uh, Japanese lunch. So like in that one, we had a couple tempura items, some uh, sushi, which was tuna, and then there was obviously white rice, a bunch of little pickled, colorful things that I'm not sure what they were. Yeah, lots of rice, lots of pickled stuff. Those bento boxes, I've never seen them yeah. real formal like that. That, yeah. that was cool. That was cool. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't know if weight trainers, you know, a lot of the guys that are big-time big, big time eaters were always talking about blasting through barriers it would almost be frustrating, I think, because instead of large, easily consumable portion yeah, sizes... Like, like inverse. Yeah, like when we went to the Hard Rock Cafe one night just for a hoot, and it was sort of a reminder, like, this is how they do it in the West, you know, because over here, it's the presentation of every food item is true artistry. I mean, it's, it's over the top. Like you said, the bright colors, everything's cut into flowers and shapes and swirls, and but as you work your way through it... You know, you find yourself getting full after 30 minutes of fiddling with all of yeah. this artistry, you know. And I don't know, maybe uh, maybe that's why you see so many thin guys. Clearly, we are standouts over here. I mean, yeah. not that we're walking around like Ronnie <laughs> Coleman, but, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm trying not to be, you know, sound racist, certainly, but everyone seems to be like they're roughly a hundred pound man in a black suit with a black tie and black pants and a white shirt. I mean, everybody... Yeah. Especially near the conference. Yeah, very uniform, but you know, even walking around yeah. downtown, like the businessmen and stuff, and very thin. Uh, clearly, I don't think there's a lot of um, stock placed in big dudes with big muscles. It's just, uh, it's comical for them. They, they, I don't think they desire it, on, on average, right, on average. Yeah, you get lots of funny questions and... I had a guy whistling at me in the elevator the other day as he's looking up, which was kind of comical. <laughs> you are re- you are really tall. You know, everyone, Mike is about, what, 6'3"? Yeah. The environment here is not built for that. I mean, there's constant risk of decapitation if you come to Japan. Yeah. Uh, I'm not having much of a problem, but even I feel a little tall, and that's not a common feeling for me. <laughs> but... Uh, so anyway, yes, yeah, so we're trying to look at this, you know, always from the weight training perspective. We walked past a, a Gold's, Gold's gym, and yeah, Mike's like, "Oh, let's go on in." So we check out this Gold's gym. There's there's essentially no free weights, not one. Um, uh, some machine, handful of machines. There's sort of a wrestling and judo mat kind of thing in the corner, um, and then to add insult to injury, what the guy told you, what thirty two dollars? Yeah, 30, for one day pass, thirty two dollars. So that's rough conversion to U.S. money, but um, U.S. dollars. But holy guacamole, thirty-two dollars to futz around on a couple of Nautilus machines, and I don't know a couple. Yeah, it wasn't of even really dumbbells that we saw anywhere, which was pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. You checked out their supplement line they had there. Yeah, very what I would consider archaic supplement line. I mean, usually when we're abroad, that's the kind of stuff that you see, you know. So it's all these claims around like CLA. And listeners, some of you remember I did my dissertation with that stuff, and I, it, suffice it to say, I don't take it myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and there's like, uh, there was some stuff that's reasonably effective, probably, but it's just not going to make anybody, you know, really built. Uh, a couple of like casein based protein powders or um, 
There was a little bit of branch chain amino acid stuff, but just a very small shelf there. But uh, it just, to me, it just really showed how little muscle sport culture there is over here. I mean, it's just not what they do. Yeah. And that was that, the only gym we saw, I think, the whole time, wasn't it? Yeah. And at the same time, there's marathon and triathlon stuff going on all yeah. over the place. Uh, so I guess if I weighed 115 pounds, you know. Probably it, run more. Maybe I would choose that. <laughs> yeah, if I was naturally geared that way. Which I'm really not. <laughs> so let's talk about the expo. Uh, at the meeting itself, uh, in, along with the poster hall, you know, you walk into the, of course, if you're not familiar, many of you are, but there's all these posters, just rows and rows of these sort of uh, portable stands where you put posters up. And built in with that, there's like free coffee shop in the corner and all these free drinks and stuff on the other side. So, an expo hall. So that's kind of nice. As you browse through all, you know, literally hundreds upon hundreds of posters, each one a study, you know, and we'll share a few w- with you that jumped out at us. No, remember, not all of these are going to be pertinent to uh, muscle sports or muscle heads in any way, but um, it's nice to be able to sip coffee while you're doing this and sort of soak it up. The expo hall, I don't think it was air conditioned at all. Maybe oh, a it wasn't. Little. There's no way. It's so humid. Through two shirts. Yeah, it's so <laughs> humid here, and you're just drenched walking around. Especially, you know, you got on a white shirt and a tie, if you can imagine that, you guys. But so, as far as the booths go, there was a group. Um, was it the U.S. Dairy Exporters? Yeah, yeah, promoting uh, U.S. whey protein. And uh, they they have a they had big graphs like single graphs up outside their booths talking about uh, like one of them was from Jeff Volek and we'll probably have Doctor Volek on the show he's uh, over at Ohio State University if you're not familiar with Doctor Volek's work a lot of low carb work he this guy is very vehemently low carb mm-hmm. kind of guy but this was um they were looking at whey protein uh, in young, healthy people, you know, over, uh, what was it, like three, six, and nine months, and they were looking at changes in lean body mass over this time, and what jumped out at me about all this is, not that whey protein was effective, um, which it was in that study, yeah, especially the first three months, I mean, there was this, there was this, uh, I don't know, like, uh, I think it was a three kilogram gain, so, you know, six, seven pound gain in lean mass, uh, but what struck me about this graph was the way protein pulled away in a very big way from uh, soy and um, carbohydrates. And what may be funniest, I think, uh, I don't want to disappoint the vegetarians out there, but <laughs> soy uh, had Worse. lower gains even than just car- a carbohydrate group, than the carb-supplemented group. Uh, and again, you might say, what about calories? Did they control for calorie intake? Yeah, isocaloric. You know, that sort of thing. Isonitrogenous. Right, yep. Same amount of nitrogen and calories in the diet. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, I find it funny. I don't know if there's a statistical difference between the uh, carb carbohydrate group and the soy. But, man, looking at this graph does not want me to consume soy over the next three months if I'm trying to build mass. This really supports a lot of Stu Phillips' work. I mean, yeah. soy is just not stacking up. The, the vegetarian people love to talk about how, oh, it's got a high protein quality. The PDCAAS is one of the one of the, two, the ways we can look at protein quality. And it looks pretty high on that scale when you correct for digestibility and all that. But, boy, it's not doing much for muscle mass. Yeah. A lot of times soy is touted as a superior plant-based protein. 
and compared to other plant-based proteins, it's not too bad. <clears throat> but then you, like you said, compare that to other, you know, dairy or other types of proteins, and it just just doesn't really hold up very well at all. Yeah, yeah. They also, uh, because, like Mike said, they were pushing whey, uh, there was another big graph, and this was not from Dr. Bolag. This is from Dr. Bayer, uh, B-A-E-R, uh, and colleagues. This is a 2011 paper, a little bit older, but they were showing how uh, uh, over a period of uh, six months, people uh, who consumed whey protein had lower waist circumference. Now, I'm usually a little iffy about this because you just, you know, you even if you use anatomical bony landmarks in the body, you try to do it as accurately as you can. Ultimately, you're using a tape measure and you're eyeballing someone's gut size, you know. So there are ways to do this. It's not as quick and dirty as that, but it's not exactly an incredibly elegant technique. You know, it's essentially tape measure, you know, around your belly. Especially um, if you're looking for like a quarter inch change or some really, really small amount of change too. And, and we've seen that here a few times. Half a centimeter change yeah. in waist circumference, one centimeter change. You know, so you're talking about a quarter of an inch maybe, give or take. And depending on how much someone flexes their abs, lets their gut go, whatever, you know, I don't know. I think that's really prone to error. But if, let's pretend for a minute that this is because this paper is peer-reviewed and published uh, it, again, there's, they're highlighting this at the weigh booth, that waist circumference is lower in the weigh people. Well, that's interesting, you know, because I, I think that kind of jives with the branch chain stuff we've been hearing, mm-hmm. that there's always this side suggestion of fat loss, not just muscle gain. And I don't know, uh, one person today, or yesterday, mentioned that the mTOR pathway, you know, that a lot of people talk about in our field that's sort of central to protein synthesis also is an energy sensor on some level in a cell. Yeah. Maybe it's got something to do with that. That you Again, you've said yourself, Mike, several times that you can't look at this mTORC as one molecule yeah, floating there. Huge you know? complex, actually, and it's different sites and yeah, mTOR1 versus 2 and all that kind of stuff, too. One other thing that was interesting, too, on the booth was the Nest Cafe booth. Actually, what's that I'm drinking now is it's like liquid room temperature coffee and then they added to the gasp of all the paleo people a bunch of grains to it which at first you're probably going what the hell and then you realize that a lot of you know countries are very low in b vitamins and getting you know just plain calories and nutrition and that type of thing so it was interesting talking to them they said that they have different formulations for different countries so they'll try to look at a specific country and see, you know, I don't remember which country they said was low in zinc and magnesium and B12 or something like that. Then they'll try to fortify specific products with higher amounts of those specific things so that they're trying to target um, individual uh, areas. So, and it's not too bad. It kind of tastes a little bit like you ran your coffee through a filter of oatmeal, but it's, it's yeah. different. Yeah, <laughs> It is sort of interesting, and it, it's it's sort of breakfast in a glass. I mean, it's not yeah. like there's a lot of protein in there, but, yeah, you get your coffee and your cereal all at once, I guess. Uh, what about the uh, medium-chain triglyceride booth? Yeah, there was a whole booth here. They got a bunch of them on uh, MCTs. Those listeners probably know medium-chain triglycerides. It used to be a 
our bodybuilding supplement back in with the mid nineties. I think Twin Lab had one, and yeah, yeah. Um, I know you said you liked the taste of them. I couldn't stand it. I thought they were horrible. The then, citrus but. stuff. <laughs> I, I had some. I, it might have been Twin Lab. I don't know who made it, but when they masked it with citrus, and these supplement companies, the good ones, they. They go to what are called flavor houses. They they really look at what flavors mask yeah, what. You know, especially so, now. Yeah, but um, one of the things that came up uh, at this booth was not just the clean calorie source. And I love this, right? I've written on this before. Uh, I think we missed the boat with medium-chain triglycerides in the 90s because essentially the runners said, oh, well, we can't. If we add enough of it to our Gatorade during a run, uh, we get diarrhea with any kind of dose that might have helped our performance. So we don't care. We can't get it in us when we need it, and so it doesn't help immediately in the middle of a run, so screw it. But I'm a big fan of this as a clean burning calorie source. You you digest and metabolize medium chains differently because the fat molecules are, are smaller. Um, but I think what, what Mike and I were kind of debating, I don't think we still have, have a good answer in fact, we've got competing answers, which is one of their claims over MCTs is that they raise ketone bodies in the body. And if you're not familiar, ketones are usually partly broken down uh, fats. For example, in someone with diabetes or someone on an extremely low-carb diet, like less than 50 grams a day, and there's other factors, of course, but you mobilize more fatty acids from you know breaking up the triglycerides in your love handles than you can burn. Right in your mitochondrial furnaces, and what you end up with is these certainly partly formed, um, br- partly broken down fats. Uh, but the idea here is rather than try to mobilize your own ketone bodies, that if you swallow MCTs, because they tend to be fairly small molecules themselves, they become little ketone bodies pretty quickly. And there's some really interesting literature that ketone bodies themselves could be helpful, and we've talked about this in past shows, right? So uh, what about the insulin connection, Mike? So you've heard different things. Yeah, so the part we're debating is that my understanding, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, I checked with a couple other people too, is that if you're not keto-adapted and you take in a bunch of MCTs, you may get a little bit of a bump in ketones, probably not ever going to be high enough compared to if you're in a nutritional ketosis type diet. Um, but the, and there was a pretty big language barrier trying to talk to them at the booth, so it could have been just entirely related to that. But it looked like they were promoting them as MCTs as an alternative source for glucose for your brain. And they showed little molecules of glucose that were sad and little happy ketone molecules. And from talking to them, it sounded like you can just add these to your normal diet and normal breakfast and get a bump in ketones. And my understanding is that you'd have to be primarily um, in a fasted condition or like Lonnie was saying, doing some type of ketogenic type um, diet in order to see much of a a bump because you need insulin to be relatively low um, at that time. And with ketosis, it seems like the limiting factor usually is how much ketones you can produce seems like your body can burn them relatively um, efficiently. And that's usually the downside of people going on a ketogenic type diet. It may take four, six, eight weeks or longer, super high levels of fat, very, very low uh, carbohydrates like Lonnie was saying. So I'm not so sure you can just add MCTs to your food and see a bump in ketones unless it's like maybe first thing in the morning or something where you're in more of a fasted condition. Yeah, I do think the research on ketone bodies 
is going to get more attention, right? Because I mean, yeah. you actually turned me on, not that I'm using them, but the, so the ketone salts. Yeah, it's a ketone salt now. Yeah. Um, Patrick Arnold's makes them. There's a couple other supplement companies looking at it. And in essence, it's a salt of uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate, so the main ketone that's produced. And as you give it as a supplement, it actually dramatically increases um, ketones in your blood within almost 20 minutes. So if you're measuring your blood glucose, what you'll see is your blood glucose actually drops dramatically as your body is then using ketones. So I think that is very interesting because now potentially you can have super high levels of ketones in a very short period of time. And while no one's researched this yet, you may be able to do that in a state where you have full glycogen stores or maybe even carbohydrates at the same time. So now you may be able to have multiple uh, fuels that may be able to use. Because that's a big downside of a ketogenic diet. There's just very poor data to show that it does anything for speed and power. Everything I've seen says it does the opposite, right? So if you're ketogenic, your ability to produce speed and power is just tends to drop like a rock. Yeah. So uh, just to, I guess, digress to the MCT thing, um, yeah, it, it's fascinating that that's where it might go, right? That yeah. it, instead of punishing yourself with eight weeks of no carbs or fasting, or it, you can't even eat that much protein uh, and be in ketosis, a yeah. lot of people. So because, of course, part of the proteins will become blood sugar. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I spoke to a woman at the booth, a researcher, and... She was like, no, you insulin levels don't matter. If you eat MCTs, you get ketones. Uh, but like I, like Mike said, I, I think there are a lot of questions as to whether you can get some of the uh, emerging benefits of having ketones in your body. Um, what we're talking about here is the difference of what's called metabolic ketosis, right, which is from essentially semi-starvation kinds of diets. <laughs> I mean, I know you can eat lots of fat and... Uh, or, and then nutritional, where you just kind of you can just consume, you can swallow, or a pharmaceutical mm-hmm. kind of ketosis. But anyway, uh, we'll see where it goes. The, the benefits of ketone bodies could be on the nervous system. There's different neurological disorders that can that might benefit. There's a, a growing list of interesting things. So keep that on your radar. Uh, I don't know if MCT oil is going to be the preferred choice. Like we were saying, maybe ketone salts or something directly would be much more potent in that regard. But MCTs are a great clean-burning calorie source. They were giving out little gel packs. Uh, I'll probably eat some of that on the way home because they're going to you know, underserve us on the flight. So uh, we had that. Uh, I don't know what else was going on at the, the booths. Uh, there was the, the dairy people. There were the MCT people. Uh, very interesting energy drinks in small little bottles. It looked like they had a crap ton of turmeric and taurine, and I don't know what else in it, but they're quite tasty. Yeah, I'm looking at a bo- <laughs> I'm looking at a bottle over on the counter. This stuff is pretty cool. I, whenever I come to Asia, I always well listen to me. I've done it twice, but both times I I'm fascinated by the wide variety of freaky energy drinks. You know, different herbs and yeah. amino acids and you know anybody who's consumed some of these different pre workouts and energy drinks, you know it's it, the, the effect is not cognitively the same as caffeine. You know, it doesn't feel like you just, all you did was drink a cup of coffee or all you did was take a caffeine tablet. So weird stuff. Uh, yeah, they're handing this stuff up for free. So, you know, you're you're getting caffeinated while you look at these posters and whatnot. And some of them had a little, they were gelatin. So they were in like a Capri Sun type little gel foil package. And they were actually a gel consistency, and they had, like, protein and pre-workout. and um, So, yeah, so very 
different combinations you don't I've, at least I've never seen anywhere else so so speaking of the posters in the expo hall let's just touch on a couple of these uh, I think our goal here is just to get some initial thoughts down so you can already tell this might be a bit of a stream of consciousness kind of a broadcast but uh, maybe we'll add some more when we return uh, but as far as the posters go there were a couple that uh, jumped out in different ways. I'll start with one that wasn't a big highlight for me, but it's the effect of this uh, Yamabu shiitake mushroom. So presumably some form of shiitake mushroom on um, the properties of skeletal muscle. And they were looking at several different things, but one of the interesting things they said was oral intake of this type of mushroom, again, like this uh, Yamabu shiitake, so shiitake mushroom, uh, is that it induced uh, some of the things in muscle tissue that would suggest a better fat metabolism. Uh, it, it did increase muscle endurance after um, feeding uh, over eight weeks. Um, and it says uh, exercise uh, was more important for muscle tenderness than the mushroom was. I think what they're saying there is, and again, there's a real language barrier here, even though the conference yeah. is in English, uh, I think what they're suggesting here is that the mushroom didn't do as much for the muscle tenderness and soreness, whereas uh, your choice of exercise certainly will. But that's no surprise to us, right? So, so what do you have? Uh, one that was actually interesting, I didn't get to talk to the presenter on it, so it was a poster on the effect of capsation on brown adipogenesis. So, as people know, capsation is, in essence, uh, hot chili pepper. And then uh, brown adipose tissue is the tissue that is actually used for temperature regulation. So it's brown because of all the, the little mitochondria powerhouses in it. And this study was pretty interesting. It was just a poster. And what I, I thought was the most interesting about it was at the end is that they were trying to differentiate sort of a mechanism of action so it's debatable about how much of this is helpful and that type of thing. Um, so the capsation receptor, the main one for that is a TRPV1. And what they said at the end was that the effects of this um, directly were actually pretty subtle. And so they did some Petri dish work and that type of thing. So the, their conclusion was that the activation of brown adipose is triggered mainly by the sympathetic nervous stimulation after the ingestion of it. So I thought that was interesting, so that a lot of the work, that it may not be necessarily a direct effect, per se, on a receptor, you know, via uncoupling one and that type of thing, but it may be, you know, and anyone who's taken a lot of pepper by accident or on purpose knows that you get very flush, you get a very sympathetic type uh, reaction. So their conclusion was that it's more related to the nervous system effect than necessarily maybe another uh, mechanistic uh, effect. So yeah, so I suppose in lay talk, you know, some of these compounds have been related to a, a raise in fight or flight nervous system activity and and that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So um, you know, I don't know. It, it it depends on a lot of things. By the way, it all these posters depend on a lot of things. We're not going to go down a huge list of always stating the number of subjects and what they controlled for. Again, this is a 
uh, screening thing just to let you know what's coming down the pike because over the next two years, a lot of these posters will find their ways into journals and then magazines. and So you, you're actually getting this months to literally years before uh, other people uh, might. Um, and lots of mouse studies. Mouse, you know, I'm... I'm looking at one here, uh, various effects of caffeine on metabolism with chrononutritional view. That's what it's called. So again, the, the, link, the English language is a, maybe a little rough. They didn't find a whole lot of significant results, but it said coffee components may be more active when they are t- taken in the morning. And I like what they're saying, coffee components. We have to remember, coffee is not liquid caffeine or just a vehicle for caffeine. There are other things in there, uh, chlorogenic acids, caffeic acids. There are things in there that affect your metabolism uh, in different ways. And people have actually looked at coffee and caffeine and found, you know, physiological differences. So Mm -hmm. Dr. Nelson here and I, we've both done work with energy drinks and coffee and that sort of thing. So uh, it's interesting that people keep looking at this sort of stuff like, uh, again, with the chronobiology, like maybe coffee affects you more in the morning. Well, that's an interesting uh, concept, you know. So um, here's another one I'm going to fire at you because I don't have a lot of the details. Identification of a novel fish-derived peptide for lowering blood glucose in mice. Uh, what they did was there was these um, peptides are sort of small protein fragments, uh, and they were suggesting that they enhanced... Uh, blood sugar uptake into skeletal muscle cells. Well, that could help you put glycogen in your muscle, full muscle, glycogen replete muscles, tends to ha- you know be more energetic, obviously, have more uh, resistance to catabolism and breakdown. But my thought about this one here is that there are so many different herbs at this conference, and, and in this case, different fish protein peptides, Everything seems like it can lower your blood sugar mm-hmm. or help your insulin resistance or help glucose uptake. So take with a grain of salt. And again, I'm telling you this from 20 years of experience. It seems like everything helps with blood sugar metabolism. And is that going to mean that you're going to be super swole, you know, six <laughs> weeks from now because you're, you've got so much glycogen packed away and you're all anabolic? Probably not. So uh, anyway, it's interesting though that they're looking at some of these zoochemicals like protein foods and uh, protein fragments from fish and whatnot, and not just uh, you know the the herbal stuff, the plant stuff. Yeah, and on the thing about caffeine too, they referenced uh, changes in circadian rhythm and moves the clock gene protein, a PER two, around. That was from this looks like Narishi, uh, two thousand fourteen. And so for listeners, that the main clock in your body is the SCN, so this little structure located in your brain that tends to override all the other little clocks. Um, but in the 90s, they found, uh, Dr. Turek's lab looked and found one of the main ones, which is actually called the clock gene. And they found it in mice. We did it by sort of what he called the brute force uh, breeding program, where they literally created lots of disturbance to their genetic material and had these mice sort of breed again. And literally the change of one, I think it was from, what is it, A to a T? I don't remember what it was. But in essence, one little tiny amino acid change in a group of 10,000 and the animal just disturbs their whole uh, rhythms. 
So instead of following, you know, about a 24-hour cycle of light and dark, awake and sleep, the mouse who has this mutant clock gene is actually, I think it was on like a 28-hour schedule. So off by six standard deviations from the normal. So they were using that model then to figure out, you know, how does this mess up, you know, the rest of your body. And they were saying that 10 to 30% of your genes have some type of uh, clock mechanism in them that's encoded for it. So we're just now trying to figure out how all this, like you're talking about the chronobiology effects of it. And it was very interesting talk. It was very similar to the one I saw at Experimental Biology and then we saw in Spain actually last year. Um, and so they're trying to figure out now, you know, what are the sort of detrimental effects of this. And another term they use, which is cool, is called social jet lag. So in essence, people are sort of causing this to themselves, um, which is ironic as we're watching this, like halfway around the world, drinking coffee, sleep deprived, learning about how we are messing with our coronal biology. Right. Imagine, imagine learning, <laughs> learning about you know all this jet lag and bodily clocks, and you yourself are sitting there like we are, yeah. completely stunned because we are. 13 hours ahead of North American time right now. So we're like living in the future and our yeah. bodies are completely light, dark cycle flipped. You know, and they're teaching us about, and you know, they're trickling different things. Like one guy's talking about whether this or that compound, he seemed to, there seemed to be some confusion, whether yeah. it was like carnitine or carnosine. Or they're feeding these different compounds and they're trying to affect these genetic clocks that Dr. Nelson was just saying is, are all throughout our body, you know, and... I don't know, you're sitting there trying to absorb it while you're stunned, you know, from the very thing that they're trying to fix up on the screen. Uh, but I think chronobiology and chrononutrition are very important issues, right? Because you could feed people similar amounts of calories or give them different nutrients. And like I just said with the coffee, maybe the coffee components work better in the morning. Well, that's probably suggestive, right? What do people usually drink coffee? It's a part of the morning ritual, uh, I know a lot of people drink at other times, but you get the point. And I think that could be true with how your body partitions nutrients. You know, you can eat similar amounts of food, and if you eat it, you s sprinkle it across the whole 24 hours, that's not a rhythm, right? Your body wants rhythms, and when you blunt these rhythms, you end up with insulin resistance and disease you know, conditions and, and that kind of stuff. So they're trying to figure out what's the best way for uh, human beings to eat and which nutrients when... And all that sort of stuff. And there, there is something to it, but I don't know what your take on it. Right now, I, I think that's all we can say. There's definitely there's something yeah. to it. Yeah, and listeners can go back and listen to the episode I did with Dr. Josh Cotter about four or five episodes. We talked about a study on meal shifting that was done in humans that probably won't even be out till next year. Um, but yeah, the, the takeaway, so the practical aspect of that, what I do with clients is, and I got this from my buddy uh, Dan Party, is just try to get up and get just a half hour of sunlight during the day. because um, so we know that the main uh, ability to reset that is uh, light sensitive. So just by being outside, even if it's overcast, your, the sensors in your eyes are very sensitive to that, are going to help reset your clock. And just because you your clock's all messed up and you get outside for one day for a half hour, it's not going to miraculously fix everything overnight. Uh, according to him and just experiments I've done on myself and clients, it can take, you know, daily for almost like one to two weeks, you know, if you really kind of are messed up. And then trying to limit blue light, especially later in the day, you know, turn your lights down. There's a program called Flux or F.Lux. 
It'll pull out the blue light in your computer screen, you know, flip your iPad so it's black instead of white. Um, I've done that with clients and especially shift workers, and it, it does seem to make a pretty big difference. Uh, some people anecdotally just seem to be more sensitive to that than others. Um, but when I've done it, if it seems like if people get really good amounts of daylight sun exposure, even just, just daylight, um, they can get a lot of the other stuff kind of wrong and still seem to do pretty good. But you start removing any sort of light sensation during the day and they're inside a lot, they tend to get really messed up pretty fast. There was a researcher from China who spoke at the chronobiology session. And I guess he was saying it was probably it might sound obvious to some of you who understand, you know, biology or interested in that sort of thing, but he was saying light is so important on your pineal gland, right? Mm-hmm. And that's your body's light dark sensor, sort of. Uh, and then food intake has a big bigger influence on the the clock genes of your liver. And that should make sense, right? Your liver stores glycogen. It sort of screens what goes into the bloodstream. Lots of things, you know, the urea cycle and dealing with amino acids. So, yeah, we, so what we try to do is maybe it's a little Dr. Frankenstein-ish, but just like you do, I try to say, well, what can I do with this now? Mm-hmm. You know, so I get up in the morning. I, ex- I purposely expose myself to daylight or more blue light on my computer screen. It's got to be pretty bright, and it's going to take 20 or 30 minutes, yeah. you know, uh, and I eat. And that's what I did when I got here. I made sure I opened the, the curtains, which, by the way, it's freaky for us. But, I mean, it, the sun <laughs> rises about 4 a.m. Yeah. here uh, in Yokohama uh, right now, this time of year. And, uh, but I, I went out for a jog, so I, I got caffeine in me. I got some carbohydrates and protein, you know, just a little bit. So I ate a little, and I went outside. And I, so I figured between the exercise and the, and the calorie intake to, you know, get my liver w- woken up and my... The light for my pineal gland and the nervous system side of things, because these all things they coordinate, you yeah. know. And hopefully, you can tell your body, listen, I, the light dark cycle is reversed. But even after saying that, uh, a lot of these guys that are feeding different herbal compounds or nutritional things and or light manipulations, whatever they're doing, it seems like in people, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like it's like they're trying to cut it from five days down to maybe three or two. They're trying to shorten this adaptation period, but even pulling all the stops like we've been doing with the light exposure and the eating, you're not going to just jump to readiness in a new time zone very well. You know, not overnight for sure. Yeah, because it's a pretty big shock to your system, right? So I, I did the same thing. Just I just thought of everything I would do on, quote-unquote, a better day at home. So as soon as I get here, I would try to do those things. So get outside, walk around have something to eat, you know, try to do everything you can to sort of retime your body um, back to where it should be and that type of thing. And But, yeah, seeing the sunlight come up at 4 in the morning this time, you know, the Yokohama time is, yeah, that's a little freaky. Yeah, maybe I'll, <laughs> I'll put a picture on the Facebook listeners page. I caught a great picture of a red circle coming up right over the ocean uh, at about four fifteen, four thirty the other morning, and it just reminded me. You know, here we are in Japan. You know, with the flag and the land of the rising sun and everything, and and there it is for real. So, yeah, <laughs> just interesting. Okay, uh, quickly, uh, two posters about fish oil uh, or EPA, right? Icosapentaenoic acid. Uh, one of them showed less anxiety-like behaviors in the rat. Now, again, lots of rodent studies here. Um, it's funny, but exercise physiologists like Mike and myself, we tend to do research with people, 
and there are lots of food scientists and biology departments. They they seem to be almost afraid of that, you yeah, know. It's like, what? But you know, <laughs> the rat or the mouse doesn't always pan out to be exact like people. Often they do, uh, but anyway, this one shows. Uh, Fish oil lowering anxiety-like behavior in the rat. Now, if you say, well, how much do you have to take? And, you know, I, I have racing thoughts before bed or I feel anxious. Well, this this one's not going to be easily translated. It's in rodents. But I can tell you I've seen other research that about 7 grams of total fish oil a day. So um, I don't remember exactly how much EPA and DHA, right, the active ingredients, but... Around 7 grams a day reduced cortisol excretion from your adrenal glands, you know, so your stress hormone response is lower when you're exposed to stress. So uh, I get what take-home message from that is fish oils and cutting back on the coffee and the caffeine, these are things that can help reduce cortisol. So if you do struggle with anxiety, you, know, you think you might be insulin-resistant, you have central body fatness, these are all things that might be able to help reduce some of the cortisol and you know the stress response and whatnot. And then uh, the other paper on, on fish, on omega-3 fatty acids, was about capillary regression in a recovering... Uh, soleus uh, muscle, uh, or not so much recovering, but um, immobilized. So what they did was, again, they used rats, but they immobilized their limb, and, you know, as part of the atrophy process, you lose capillary density, you know. Um, of course, everybody knows you, you get all the small little, smallest of the blood vessels, your capillary beds. They're not always completely open. In fact, usually they're mostly closed, but you don't want those going away. And so they put these rats in a atrophy model to make their muscles waste away, and interestingly, the fish oils reduced some of the capillary mm. loss. So if you're injured, for example, you're in a cast, something like that, um, there's at least some suggestion here that getting um, enough omega-3 fatty acids uh, could help maintain your vascular beds. Uh, maybe you get a little less regression, you know. Hmm. Interesting. There's one other one here again, another uh, mouse study. So AMPK and PPAR agonists, simultaneous activation improves exercise performance in trained mice. All right, so, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like, hey, there's a bunch of Greek in there. It sounds like maybe you're speaking Japanese. Um, but it was interesting. So they took uh, seven-week-old mice, and they were doing endurance training. And if you cut to the chase, what they found was that, so exercise plus an AMPK agonist, so AMPK is widely regarded as sort of the energy sensor in the cell, has downstream effects. Um, other compounds, they call PPAR gamma agonists. So you can kind of think of these as similar but acting on different mechanisms. And when I talked to the researcher there briefly, the, the takeaway, which is maybe useful, is that one of them by itself, he said, didn't have much of an effect. And it was his belief that you had to combine both of these things at the same time. So while it's pretty far out assumption from there, what they showed was that it increased uh, fat oxidation. So one of the ways in practice you can change AMPK activation is by doing training either fasted or not fasted. So fasted is... Uh, stimulus that your body says, oh, oh, energy levels are low. And most people know, right, the whole fasted training and using more fat. And it's debatable if that you know, really pans out in the long term or not. 
But in the study, that was not enough to have a significant effect. But if they combined it with a PPAR agonist, then they did see a significant effect. So maybe in the future, if there's certain herbs or other things that have different targets, maybe adding those sometime when you do fasted training, maybe that can further upregulate fat use. You know, if you're doing long endurance training and the use of fats is a limiting factor for you, uh, maybe you can sort of increase that end of the spectrum. Um, obviously, I like metabolic flexibility, so I don't think you want to crush your carbohydrate use ability. Um, but it was just interesting that I think we're looking at synergistic combinations of different mechanisms now. And instead of trying to pin everything on, oh, it's just mTOR, oh, it's just AMPK, or oh, it's just this particular one, when we know that all of those interact um, together in the body. So we're starting to see more, okay, if we use X target and Y target, do we see a little bit better effect? And most of the time, it's sadly really not that effective, but at least it makes a little bit more physiologic sense. You kind of want to push everything in the, the same direction. So if you want to use more fats, having 80 grams of carbohydrates before you go exercise, probably not the best idea. Consequently, if you want to move a lot of weight during weight training, doing every session fasted and trying to keep your carbohydrates below 30 grams a day is not going to be the best for that either. So, Yeah, so when we're talking about all these um, controllers and pathways and molecules, um, not to oversimplify, right, but we're talking about a sub-microscopic level, literally the molecular level machinery that's operating in your muscle cells and how to best manipulate that, yeah. right? So if you, ha- if you understand some of the different pieces of the, of the machinery, then you can kind of manipulate them, like you're saying, not just from one thing, but yeah. others. And it's funny how bodybuilders tend to guinea pig themselves. What you were saying reminds me of like when I would uh, try to get lean for competition, I would usually take some kind of pre-workout or you know sugar-free mm-hmm. dietary stimulant, even if it was just caffeine or back in the day some like caffeine, uh, ephedra, aspirin, you know, in yeah, some kind ECA of low dose stack. ECA stack, and then do my hour uphill, you know, uh, gentle sort of fasting stuff on the treadmill. So it, it, it is funny how some of this stuff it's, it's explaining the mechanism, and then but you know if you want outcomes. Sometimes you do go to the, maybe not the bro science, but you go <laughs> see what happens in the gym, you know, and, and see what sort of works. Uh, I've got one more. Uh, we might actually save some of our own caffeine research, maybe talk about it, uh, you know, live uh, next week. Uh, because some of the research on that we've been doing with coffee that you all helped fund, actually, uh, at least on small part, and it's a very much appreciated uh, we could talk about uh, next time, I think. But there was one in here about the effects of skipping breakfast on muscle degradation, soreness, and performance. And what shocked me when I was looking at this is they said 30% of Asian men skip breakfast. Wow. And 25% of Asian women skip breakfast. And what they did was they look at um, a muscle damage marker. It's specific to muscle tissue. It's called 3-methylhistidine, or 3-MH. And when that starts to go up in your urine, that means you're breaking down, you are degrading muscle tissue. And they found that was elevated both acutely, you know, over like two, four, six, eight hours, uh, and I think over a longer term, I'd have to go double-check some of this, but there was more of this muscle breakdown product 
in people who did not eat before resistance training. And this is great evidence for me. I used to try to tell, there was all these guys I used to work with with some D1 football programs, and they'd show up fasted, they'd lift really hard, and then they'd leave and not eat again. And I'd tell them, you know, you're, you're half-wasting your effort. I mean, you're not completely wasting mm-hmm. your effort, but, uh, and this is really suggestive of that. Their muscle tissue is, is more or less going to break down. You know, resistance training by itself, with no other intervention, is acutely a catabolic stimulus, uh, with their, when there's no nutrients provided pre and post and whatnot, and they mentioned that in this paper. So, yeah, more three methylhistidine muscle breakdown marker uh, in people who don't get their sort of pre-lift, you know, fuel and building blocks. So it's that might seem obvious to you, but I think it's good to see the data, and then I can go back even and calculate what the percentages are here. You know, is it a it looks like something on the order of a maybe a 10 to 20% increase in muscle breakdown uh, when you're doing the just fasted resistance training, you know, with no uh, pre-post nutrient intervention. I think they gave them, um, well, you know, Asian-type food. Here it is, uh, milk, a rice ball, and <laughs> orange, and an orange. So at least it was some carbs and some protein, essentially. So that's all I've I've got as far as the posters. Were there any others that you? No, I mean I think it was pretty interesting. We saw the one talk on green tea, which, um, yeah, I'd say the takeaway was yeah, green tea is good. I think it's helpful. Maybe a slight bump in use of fat as a fuel source, but again, the data that was presented on that for even at twelve weeks was like a one centimeter change in waist circumference. So yeah, a little iffy. Pretty iffy. I don't think it's a reason to get rid of green tea, but if you think adding green tea to your diet, you're going to be ripped in a week, it's probably not going to happen. But right, yeah. but it is fascinating to see that there's, like we talked about, green tea is everywhere here. Um, just the different types of, you know, not not a lot of high protein per se. And even people I've talked to are like, well, well they eat a lot of rice. And it, it is true that rice is a huge component of the diet here, but even the traditional meals that we got, they didn't give us a lot of rice. I mean, there's some, but it's really not... Like, if you were to go to a restaurant in the U.S. and order rice, you'd probably get, like, four times as a much. A bucket, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. The portion sizes and everything are very much scaled back. Yeah, it's a it's a good proportion of what they're eating. You know, you might say, let's say it's a, a quarter of, what, of the meal yeah. along with... But, you know, the rest of it, I, they don't really have what I would call, you know... Uh, a grain focused diet like we have in the states yeah. like although rice is a grain and it's important in their diet there's a ton of vegetables mm-hmm. and there's smoked meats and like you said pickled products and there's all this other stuff presented very well and you're right and by the time you work your way through it you actually haven't you def- definitely have not eaten your bucket of high glycemic index white rice you know, like you might in the States. Yeah. And even the cereal and the yogurt, so the yogurt was all unflavored. You could put a little bit of jam on top of it. And then the only sweetener they had was just a little bit of powdered sugar. So nothing was really, like, pre-sweetened at all. Like, they had, you know, Western American-type cereal, but it was just looked like smashed grains that were made into, like, a flake, and then they were, there was no sweetness at all. Yeah. So they had a little bit of powdered sugar you could add to them, and that was it. Yeah, good term. Nothing is pre-sweetened. Yeah. I mean, vending machines flipping everywhere, and they're 
full. I'd say almost all of the contents are sugar-free. It's unsweetened yeah. green tea. And, I mean, that would sell about nothing in the United <laughs> States. And people are buying it up because they just want the taste of green tea. They're yeah. not – their palates have not been trained to, you know, need sugar uh, in every single thing that they consume. And it's – there's just not much sugar here. That's probably a good point. You know? Yeah, and there's not much obesity at all. I mean, just the amount of even overweight people you would see was just very, very – I'd say minimal compared to the U.S. is almost the direct um, opposite, too. So I thought it was kind of an interesting paradox that it took us forever to find one gym that no one was really in that wasn't very effective, but yet the U.S. has, you can go to almost any corner and find a gym, but yet we have more obesity than what we see over here, too, so it makes it wonder. Yep. All right, well, um, that was it. I think as far as content, uh, yeah, we saw some of the speakers we've seen on an international circuit before. It was good to reinforce some of that. Oh, I mean, yeah. these guys are famous uh, rock stars. If you yeah. if you can believe that that happens in the in the nerd world, uh, <laughs> as far as new content out of the the speakers, the podium speakers, I don't think this conference rank, ranked in, you know in my top three or anything like that. It was good, like it yeah. reinforced. Co- hundreds of posters to harvest we only shared a couple here uh, but you know it's also the experience too uh, we were talking on the facebook page about you know i mean we went to uh, a buddhist temple amazing absolutely amazing yeah. uh, I, I managed to do that in thailand before as well uh what a, a shinto shrine yep. uh you know cup of noodles museum yeah the cup of noodles museum <laughs> Yeah, they do like their noodles, too, in addition to yeah, the rice, don't they? Yeah. So, anyway, a little insight for you from the Asian Congress on Nutrition. Uh, maybe we'll add a little bit to this. Maybe we won't. We'll find out. And, uh, I don't know. Arigato. Arigato. See ya. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums, and certainly you can request products, and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. 
Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.